So we changed everything and we bought a the number one crack house in Chandler. And the cops, one cop pulled me, he was talking to me, he's like, I've had my gun literally drawn on this house on six separate occasions. Wow. He said, there, there's been more crack go through this house. He goes, you're an idiot. He goes, push it over. He goes, no, if, I said, if I, can, if I can change this house, it changes the community. And it was in the community we work with. Hey everyone, welcome to In Progress with Motion Tactic. In this episode, Tyler and I talk with Paul Gunther, the founder of Live Love and a pastor at The Grove, a Christian church in Chandler, Arizona. Paul's parents were international missionaries, which gave him the opportunity to be steeped in various cultures and see more of the world as a child than most people will see in their entire lives. Paul has grown various successful businesses in construction, music management, and marketing. He even went platinum in the late 90s while managing the hip band Sixpence None the Richer. In the early 2000s, Paul dedicated his life to serving people with his entrepreneurial talents, and along the way, it winds him up in some pretty precarious situations. For some context in college, I did an internship under Paul at the Grove, and Tyler was interning there alongside me in another department, so you may hear us referencing some stuff from that past experience. We're really excited that Paul was able to join us and share some of his story. So without any further ado, let's jump in. Welcome to In Progress. We got uh, joined by Tyler today, as usual, and we got Paul Gunther. Junior. Junior. Thank you for the reminder. Paul Gunther, Junior. Paul, what are you doing today? What's your job title? I don't even know what (laughs) what to tell people that you actually do. What do you do? I don't even know how to answer that question, to be honest with you. What do you be more your, specific. What do you fill your time with on a day-to-day basis that uh, matters? That matters? Probably not a lot that actually matters. <laughs> uh, I think one of the things I say is I try to bring uh, hope into the world by exposing the world to people, if that makes sense. So bringing people on journeys around the world. I don't know if that explains it or not. Well, break that down a little bit. Ask me more specific questions. Yeah, so... What's your job title? Yeah. For Live Love? Um, let's elaborate on that. So you have... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so much to unpack that we're like, we're working on it together. So you are the founder and current like, full, I, would, I would say like part-time operator or full-time operator of Live Love? I would, I'm the founder. Great. And then... You also work at a local church in Chandler mm-hmm. called the Grove Bible mm-hmm. Church, correct? The Grove. The yep. Grove. Cool. Why not Bible Church? Because uh, it's called the Grove. Got it. There you go. So what is your job title? So we know founder at Live Love and not operator. <laughs> and uh, and then what's your job title at the Grove? Uh, so at the Grove... I mean, I just I hate titles. I think they're stupid, to be honest with you. So I don't try to even use a title. I just I work at the Grove, and I I I tell people when they ask me what I do is I tell them whatever we're starting, I help start it. Oh, that's I've just realized that, uh, like when COVID hit, we went 100% online platform in a week, and so I became the executive producer for everything, and did that producing throughout all of it. So any anything new, generally I have my hands in it, and I just, just the way I'm wired, I feel like that's where I'm good. That's uh, interesting. As a former, I didn't realize this till till recently, but as a former entrepreneur, I, I love the front end, and I hate the middle and the back end. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it, it sounds like the founder personality, like just like wants to, um, start and like feel like there are no rules today. Like you're in a wild, wild west situation and then you're just like forming something out of nothing. Right. Yeah. Right. So let's dive into that a little bit then the history of your entrepreneurship. So you say former entrepreneur, um, how'd that get started? Uh, I mean, my words, I was always the dumb kid in school. And, uh, when I was in college, I started a business, um, I mean, I was I was I started a construction business, but I also started a uh, business management 
company for bands and was more as a hobby. And my construction company took off right after college. And at the same time, I'm running my music business. I don't really know what I'm doing. I've got a book. Uh, literally, it's called How to Make It in the Music Business. Uh, there's a band I was managing, uh, a guy from Nashville from a record company, saw them, wanted to sign them. He said, don't sign with anybody else. And we had nobody else. And I said, well, I, you better be quick then. And he said, I'll call you Monday. This is back in the day when the cell phones were like a brick. Yeah. So on Monday, he called me, and I was framing a house. I had no shirt on. had my tool belt on. had my framing crew. And I saw it was 615, so I knew it was Nashville. So I told my crew to take a break. And he said, this is Bob Wooler from Sublime Records. We want to sign your band. The band's name is Silage. Um, you know, Silage. They're crazy, man. <laughs> yeah, they made me do some weird things in life, listening to <laughs> Silage. And so I said, I said, he said, we'd like to sign your band. We'll offer that. We'd like to offer them a one plus four with six points. And I, I, had, I had no idea what he yeah, was talking about. Yeah, that's Greek to me. I, yeah, don't know. I had no you idea what, what he was talking about. So I said, can you hold on a second? And so I went in my truck. You Googled it. No, they didn't have Google. Yeah. The internet didn't exist. I went in my truck, and I got my book, How to, How to Make It in the Music Business. <laughs> and I put it on the top of my truck, and I opened it to the page of record contracts. I said, Bob, hold on a second. I got somebody I'm working with. I'll be right back with you. And I read real quick the paragraph, found it. And it said, record companies will offer you one plus four. Try to get at least a two plus two. It means the amount of records guaranteed versus whatever. And so I said, oh, I said, we want a three album guarantee plus two options. And I want 15 instead of eight. And I didn't know what the fi- eight and the 15 was, <laughs> but I figured if he offered me eight, I should almost double it. And so while he's talking, I wasn't listening. So I kept reading and it said that, superstars like Michael Jackson will get 12 to 14 points. New artists will get 8 to 10 points. And while I'm sa- reading this, he says 15 points. He goes, nobody on our, on our label gets 15 points. He goes, the highest we could do is 10. I said, no, nah, the highest you could do is 12. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go with these, uh, these other people that are talking to me. And the other people that were talking to me were my framers that were building. He didn't need to know that. It wasn't technically a lie. And so I negotiate negotiate the whole contract. Long story short, he faxes me. We go back and forth. I decide to show it to a lawyer right before we sign, and I show it to an entertainment lawyer. The guy sits there, and he looks at me. It's about a month later. He goes, who negotiated this? I'm like, mm, I did. He goes, this is the best contract I've ever seen. <laughs> and I realize, I'm like, it doesn't – sometimes you don't really have to know what you're talking about or even know how you're going to do something. You have to just – it's how you say it or how yeah. you really – you know, I knew I could figure out what we were talking about. I, right. I didn't need to fully understand the, the whole gist of the conversation. And so for me, that was kind of that starting of of just – it went from managing one band to managing 10 bands to signing national contracts to – realizing that on a national level when they do booking on their tours they don't really care and so we'd start a booking agency and then as we toured more we realized they don't know how to market it so we would start a marketing agency and then we realized this was when the internet was starting and they don't know how to build websites so we started a company to build websites wow um and just then on to radio and how they promote it and on to film and, and each time realizing almost every person i was dealing with either pretended like they knew what they were talking about or was so full of themselves that they couldn't see a different perspective. Right. Okay, so a lot of people, like, I feel like the opposite type of personality is someone that feels like they need to have credentials and, like, be qualified. Yeah. Yeah, all the experience lined up. And you're just like, I can do this because I think I can do this. My dad called me a con man. And so what I realized is, so I have a friend that just moved here, and they hate their job. Mm-hmm. This is, and I'll get to my point. Remind me what we're talking about in a minute. Sure. And so I have a friend. They work in the in the medical dis, in the medical field, and I have a friend who's like literally the executive director of Banner Hospitals. And so I said, let me call my friend at Banner. Like they're the top person there. They'll get you a job. And they're like, no, I don't want somebody to help me get there. I'm like, why wouldn't you want that? That's networking. Can you have somebody yeah. else? get you there. I mean, you need to have a brain. But I realized at a young age, it's like, I don't need to necessarily know all the answers, but I need to know the people. And it's that networking aspect. 
Um, wow. And for me, like school was was really really hard. Like it was really difficult. I remember when I was in my first sixth grade year. My second sixth year grade year was a different story. But my first sixth grade year, my parents had me tested for learning disabilities and all kinds of stuff. And I remember being in the room with my mom and my dad, and the person came in and they said, "Okay, we have the test results." He, he comes. His results are he's of very high intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I remember my dad going, what? And there, there was just enough of a pause where my dad was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, how does he have high intelligence? The guy's a moron. And, but there's all of these other issues. You know what I mean? He reads words backwards. He talks backwards. He says words in our words. And the list could go on. And so for me, it was that desire to, I think, I think everyone wants to be successful. But then how do you become successful if... I remember I studied for a French test in 10th grade, Mrs. Malloy. She was hot. And I always just wanted to impress her. And I studied, and my mom helped me. I studied for literally five days, page after page after page. I mean, it was 20 words. 20 words in English. I had to write them in in French. I got a a two, a four out of 20. Wow. And she looked at me. She took my test. She's like, Paul, you flunked. Why don't you try studying? And I remember I took my stuff out of the note. I didn't say anything. I took it out of my backpack, and I showed her. It was an entire spiral notebook. I said, look. And she just looked through it, and she looked at me, and I remember she just went, yeah, there's something wrong with you. And she walked away. <laughs> and I'm like, if I can't, like, if I try my hardest, and I still flung, then what's the point? You know what I mean? Yeah. So the traditional learning system, like, just wasn't working. At all. At all. But as I remember in college, we had a marketing class, and you could start your own... What's that called when it's not real fake business? Yeah, like a mock business. Mock or business, and it like was that. the first time they did it through a computer. Cool. And I made millions. Like I destroyed everybody, and it was like, oh, like that makes sense. And so as I'm starting businesses, it was like this finally starts to make sense. Mm-hmm. And I remember in college, I had to go do an internship because I was a business major, and I'm like, why can't I do an internship for myself? Like I'm already doing this. And I was able to get 12 credits for myself, interning for me. And it was this, it's this when you push against the system a little bit, realizing that I don't fit into this box. But then I don't even know if there is a box. Right. You know? And unfortunately, when you don't know what that is, sometimes you lose your shorts multiple times. For sure. You're able to kind of really figure out who you are. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so your dad calls you a con man. Because... A good con man now. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Because you're not trying to <laughs> he hurt says I, with- he says I use my gift of conversation to uh, bring change in the world. Okay, interesting. I guess that's a positive spin. I like that version of it. I didn't want to leave it as uh, my like, dad calls me a no, because like there's a building we're needing in Africa, and so I can bring it up in a conversation to a person that I know could afford and right. Bada boom, bada bing. Yeah. So you have this saying that has like really struck a chord with me. So for those of you who don't know, me and Tyler, uh, well, I worked for Paul uh, in high school, and Tyler was working for another guy indirectly kind of working for Paul too, probably in, in a way, in proximity. <laughs> but I worked for you, and it was at the Grove, and um, you played like a huge part of my upbringing and growing up, and you taught me a lot. I knocked you out once, too. Yeah, and the work that we did was so odd. One day, we'd be going to pick up some materials, and t- Paul taught me how to drive a trailer. The next day, I was manage- helping him manage this girl who just got off The Bachelor. and <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah, that lasted a whole day. We were trying to like capitalize off of her. Got, a, got on E for that, and TMZ, though. TMZ, yeah. We helped uh, that situation, so we got her on TMZ. And then the next day we'd go rock climbing and Tyler would be there. It was just it's like, what was the actual work we got done? Do you know what the actual work was? What was it? So for me, you were in a bad season in your life. It was rough. And for me, and this is where when I have conversations with other people, when I work with somebody, specifically somebody younger than me, I don't really care as much as what we do. The fact I'm more interested in will you remember this in 10 years. Yeah. And so those life experiences that what we do, what we're, we weren't rock climbing. I was scaring the pee out of you, mm-hmm. but giving you memories so that years down the road, you know, there's some people that will do drugs or do have addictions. I just really feel that life 
is so full of of hope and joy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and yet we get stuck. We live in a day and age where it's dark and we're in our COVID world and we live in our Facebook fake world. And yet when we have these experiences with each other, we, we create memories. And so for right. me, when I look back on that season, the work didn't matter. It was just you and I being together. Totally. Yeah. And it really was pretty formative for me. I mean, the saying that I was going to bring up was figure it out. <laughs> we have a, uh, an employee here who is also kind of part of us during this phase of life. And he was wearing that shirt the other day. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like I didn't realize how much that phrase kind of stuck with me. Um because that's kind of what life has been for me mm-hmm. um, during, you know, different times with different struggles and and then kind of like getting back on my feet, um, marrying my wife, kind of just going through life. And then even with when Tyler and I were starting the business, there was just so much of that. We didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to college. You study business. That doesn't do anything for you. Right. The, only, the only thing that helps is actually doing it. And we would try to like structure it as much as we can and then something would come up that was you know a huge problem or an issue we had no idea how to deal with so you know that whole concept of figuring it out as you know you kind of taught me that at a period of life and it stuck with me a lot but like where does that where does that come from for you like was it was there a person in your life that kind of fostered that in you or so two two three things uh sixpence none the richer yeah so remind me to come back to that my mom and then I think the world we live in today. And I think the world we live in today, and the world we live in today goes back probably 10 years of how do we do this? You get out your phone, you Google it, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with mm-hmm. that. My mom will constantly Google stuff and figuring it out. But I feel like if we don't know how to do something, we just stop. And yet there's an entire world that brought us to this point of people that banging their head against the wall over and over and over again, trying to figure it out. It's got to be possible. Mm -hmm. You just don't know how, you know, my mom stepping back into that growing up, knowing I had learning stuff. uh, I went back and I asked her is actually like a month ago. I said, was I really like that bad in school? And and she kind of chuckled. She's like, do you remember me writing backwards? letters and numbers on your back. And I was like, it kind of jolted a memory. I'm like, yeah, a little bit. She goes, it was the process of you learning how to, how to write and learning how to speak and learning how to believe. And she goes, I always just wanted you to believe that even when they said, you can't do this, you can. And so I think she instilled this, this ability to just go, uh, and that's part of being an entrepreneur, what you guys are doing of, um, yeah, I don't know how to do this. That's okay. Let's go. You know, and, and then stepping back now into sixpence, none the richer. Uh, my company had been pretty successful and I had, uh, I had a girl named Dawn and another one named Kim and they walked with me everywhere I went. One was a really redhead militant, punchy in the mouth she was only like 18, but sh- we would go into meetings with huge executives and she would just say, no, you're wrong. That's stupid. And I'd have to kind of control her <laughs> wow. anger. Yeah. And then I had the other one that was really timid, but really detail-oriented. And uh, Sixpence, None the Richer heard what their record label heard. They, If you don't know who they are, they have a song called Kiss Me and a song called There She Goes. They went number one in the world in uh, 1999. And 2000. And they asked us, we're looking for somebody to do grassroots marketing. We heard what you've been doing with these other bands, but here's what we need. And he said, he said, do you remember when the Beatles came to America and all those girls were standing there cheering? I said, yeah. He goes, that's all fake. He goes, it was all, the record companies paid for all that. He goes, here's what we need. We want to take the actual fans of Sixpence and I need you to when they play in Tallahassee, Florida, I need you to be able to have a real Sixpence fan call them at 2.43 the next day with a female fan and say, hey, I heard this song by Sixpence something, some girl singing named Kiss Me or something. Can you play it again? And then I need you to be able to duplicate that in 60 markets in America. And I need you to be able to write a program that where you can, because this was before the internet is just starting this is in like 96, 97. He goes, I need you to write a program 
or do you have a program that you can control that where we can input all the data of every single fan all around the country? We'll give you every record company. And every single time it's played, we tell you the age of the person we need to call in, the radio station, the exact time, and then control when they call. Can you do that? Wow. He's the executive vice president of the record label. And I looked at him like, yeah, we can do that. And I could tell Kim was right here, and I could tell she was just looking a hole in my head. And I just kind of put my hand by my side and shook my finger at her to stay quiet. And he goes, okay, can you do that in two weeks? I said, absolutely. And he said, okay, we'll pay you X amount per month. He goes, this is going to take us three years, but this song's going to go number one in the world. He goes, do you, I need your honesty. Can you do this? I'm like, absolutely, we can do this. And we're sitting, I remember we're sitting in his hotel room, and he played us the song on a, on a CD. And we walked out, and Kim's like, Paul, we don't have any ability to do that at all. And I said, we have two weeks to figure it out. I said, <laughs> I said 100%, I'm not walking away from this. I said, Kim, you're going to figure it out. And we, we hired some kid from college. We had him write a program. Back then, you'd go see a concert, and everybody would sign up on the mailing list. Do they still do that or not? Uh, I assume so. I, I, mean, they, I don't think they people do. definitely still try to get mailing lists, uh, okay. but I've so never seen Back that. in the day, they didn't know what to do. So all these bands had these mailing lists, and they would just – and this is back when you literally sign up. So I had this intern, his name was Paul, and we called him LP for Little Paul. He worked for me for three years for free. And I told LP, I said, I need you to input, there was like 20,000 names. I said, I need you to input every single name on Sixpence into the computer. So he sat there, and then he got all his friends, and they all did it for free. And his payment was every band, when Silage came through, they always got backstage passes. So we took all of those names, and it's easy now with the way computers are. Right. But we wrote it in, and we were able to track and buy each, each state, each city. And we called the name of the company was Spy Promotions. And so we called them our spies. And so we would call them. We would say, hey, if you call, we'll tell you when to call. We'll give you backstage passes. So, Tyler, name your favorite band. Any band, name any of your favorite, a band you like. Kings of Leon? Okay, Kings of Leon. If somebody from the label from Kings of Leon called you and said, hey, this is so-and-so from Kings of Leon, they're coming to town, would you do this for me and call this radio station for me? We'll give you backstage passes. You get to meet the band. It's an easy yes. Yes. Or this is what everybody else did. Hey, I'll pay you 50 bucks to call them. Sure, you're not really going to call them, but you're going to take the 50 bucks. Yeah. And so what we did is we took those fans – called them spies, had them calling in on a regular basis. They'd print out a report. They also went to every record store back when you had record stores, made sure all the albums were right in front and center, and then were able to prove all of that, sent it to the record label. When the band came into town, every single one of those kids got backstage passes. They got a special meet and greet, and that just kept multiplying. Wow. And because you take the fan engagement, you take the person what they're passionate about. They don't care about the... Most people, if you gave them a choice of would you rather do something that's a, that a, that's a story you can tell for the rest of your life or $5,000, you're going to take the story a lot of time, most of the time. And the story is different for each person, but mm -hmm. that's where the, the key is, is, is finding people's passion in that story. Right. And so for me, the figure it out, that, that's where everyone has the ability. And if you really are that person where you can't figure it out, there's the door. And, mm hmm yeah. What role – this is – answer this question as openly as you want to, but what role does fear play in your life? Like is there something you're – you seem like relatively like a risk taker type of person, a starter. You like to start and found things. But um, talk about fear and what that looks like for you in your journey. So from a physical aspect, when I was in college, I would rock climb without ropes and climb buildings and nothing it's dead inside <laughs> and just didn't really have any of that at my age now or when we were rock climbing i remember there was one climb that we did where i literally was like i'm going to die but i can't i can't let you know but i was scared like literally scared out of my mind i, have, I don't think i've ever been that scared and i just it, it's this thing when you get older there's different things that grip you with fear and it's like when you have no kids or no wife or no care in the world who cares if i fall it'll be a good yeah. story well, 
What's it matter? Yeah, who, who does it affect? It doesn't matter. It affects me. You like, have no concept. And, you know, our brains develop a little bit. Um, but then even I was – my dad gave me a book called – I think it's called The Two Mountains. And it's true in my life, and I think it's true in most people's life. It says we spend the first half of our life um, climbing this mountain of being known and that fear of living a life where you're not known. And then you then you go through this valley, these failures, and that was a huge chunk of my life as well. And then the second half of your life is that fear of not being known, that fear of not leaving a legacy or a story. So the first half of my life would have been that fear of not being known as successful. Where now I don't really care if you think I'm successful or not. I, I honestly care less. But for me, I think what drives me, I tell my wife, I'm like, I really, this is a morbid thought, but I think it'd be fascinating to be at my funeral and to watch and to see and have balloons and celebrate and stories, you know? I mean, that's more important. It's not realistic, but I'm hoping there's a chance. <laughs> you know, that that's possible. You just have to fake your death and then <laughs> attend the funeral. And- I told my wife when I'm close, let's, I said, let's just, have, let's just have it and then just send me off in the desert. Yeah, I remember, so we were fundraising some money to go on a missions trip together to Malawi, and I think we got like 20 grand, and the whole goal was to buy mosquito nets and purchase mosquito nets, distribute them in the villages, and um, help out people, you know, prevent malaria, and we were, this was probably like the pinnacle of all my of my fear in terms of working with you was when we were in Malawi and we had the $20,000. We went to the bank to get that, the money in. What's the Malawi currency? Kwacha. Kwacha. So all of a sudden we had like, how, what's that exchange rate? Like, oh, so, that would have been millions of Kwacha. <laughs> suitcases, so standing there. suitcases of Kwacha. Yeah. So we're standing there getting all this money and there's all these people staring at us. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> it's a great Do feeling. you remember that? That's yeah, a good feeling. Yeah, but there's moments like that where it makes other theme, other things that aren't as hard seem more attainable mm-hmm. because you know you're not going to die. Right. You know, so like for me, I know at the end of the day, I'm going to end up in my bed for the most part. Mm-hmm. At least I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So it's like whatever else we do, whatever risk we take, like take it. I mean, yeah. it, if it's not going to put you or your family in harm or your finances in harm, potentially it might, but like that was the risk that we took was, you know, quitting our jobs mm-hmm. and literally no investment capital in this business. It was just me and Tyler trying to figure it out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so there's always, like I always go back to those stories to remind myself that it's okay to push yourself a little bit. Right. Um, I, I just have no desire, and I don't think you do either, to get to the end of my life and go, man, I wish... I would have tried that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. You know, I wish I would have done that. And I think that's part of like my job at the Grove is I really feel uh, I was blessed by my parents before I was in eighth grade, uh, which would have been most people's ninth grade, to have been in, I think, 20 different countries, to have gone into communist countries, to have gone into leper colonies, to, I mean, and to see those things. Mm-hmm. And, and, You've experienced this. Have you been? Did you go overseas with me or no? Uh, no, not with you. But I traveled with the Grove to Liberia. Oh yeah, yeah. so that's this trip was then, far more dangerous. That's a hundred percent. I got that. a hundred percent. So seeing things like that, you come back to America and you can constantly go. Oh, I'm I'm good. Even if I lose my shorts, yeah. I'm I'm good. Yeah. You know, rock and, bottom is different here. Yeah, and I tell bottom. people, you know, yeah. the the training I do when I bring people overseas is look. Worst case scenario, you die. Well, that is really worst case scenario. <laughs> but at some point, we'll get someplace and we'll be so tired that you will fall asleep and there will be a new day, you know? And there, my, I just had two, three people die in Africa that were our key, like key people. And in Africa, they, they have a saying, they say, death is a neighbor. And what, what they mean by that is it's so familiar. That it's just constantly there, where we don't have to deal with a lot of those things, and a lot of our issues that we deal with, quite honestly, and I don't think I'm wrong, are selfish. And I think when Americans travel and see the world, it changes your lens on everything. 
I mean, I had one lady come back from Malawi and just she wept all the way home. And she kept saying, Paul, I'm going to give away everything I own. I'm like, don't give away everything you own. I mean, that's stupid because eventually in a couple months, you're going to want to buy it all back. I mean, give some away, but the Africans, the Malawians specifically will say, and the Liberians will say, go home, know that you're blessed. You've been born in one of the greatest countries in the world, but don't forget these memories and don't forget these stories and don't forget these experiences. And so when I'm in Malawi with you and I say, here, hold a suitcase of money, I want you to feel like you're about to die. But I also have five guys that are watching you that you don't realize that are standing in the crowd. <laughs> so it's not full death. that They would have taken care of you. But it is that feeling of, I, I could die. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, okay, I might be stepping in like such a complicated conversation that I, I apologize if this is even like uh, too difficult to answer in the context of this conversation. But uh, I feel like you have the one of the coolest perspectives being able to travel overseas and um you know we've been we have been dancing around in conversation but you have as part of your role at the grove taken um probably dozens or hundreds of people on mission trips overseas thousand wow that's like really serious so when i went to liberia um i i was struck with this like afterthought that that was for me Mm-hmm. And not actually for service mm-hmm. to uh, to help people. And I think like going into it, maybe it's naive to think that like your plan is to go to this other country. You've you know put the personal effort into fundraising, fundraising to get there, and like now you're there. And I felt like a lot of those experiences were for me. And then I felt like the whole thing was selfish. And I was like, what was the point of that? So like I, I'm I'm sure you've dealt with this in conversation with people before. So I want to get your thoughts. Did it change you? Oh, for sure, for sure. So for me, uh, if if I grew up overseas with Americans coming to visit my dad, and I hated the Americans coming over because the Americans would come and do whatever they want, and it wasn't what my dad wanted. It wasn't what I wanted. It was just what the Americans wanted. So when I bring people, first of all, the one thing that we do different, we've, we've a little bit more experience in Liberia, but I don't – I want – the Liberians or the Malawians or the Haitians or in Thailand or in the other the countries we go to, uh, that same entrepreneurial spirit, you know, that I embrace, I try to find those same people in the countries. So I, I literally will look for the best of the best in those countries. And then we empower them over a slow period, long period of time of if you could start a business or a nonprofit what would you do? What would that look like? And then with Live Love, Live Love literally is long-term community development. So a lot of times, and and that started, I'm kind of getting a little bit out, but when I moved back, to, I lived in Guatemala before I lived here. The first thing I saw was Extreme Home Makeover, and everybody loved that show. And I remember watching that show and thinking, this is the stupidest show because – it's great because it makes everybody feel good, but you're having a family that's been dealing with some really life struggles. And then you bring in hundreds of people that will come in and build them a massive house, which you're is stuck with the bills, huh? Right, which like. is a great thing. And oftentimes they'll pay it off. But because of their story, I've been talking with a lot of guys even today on on your stories. Everyone's story brings us to a different place. What is the story that brought them into that place of pain, hurt, whatever. Mm-hmm. What, what happens then is they would build them this, this, this mansion, which then, even if it's debt-free, has bills, has upkeep, has you know all the things that go along with that. And then they all leave, and that family is still alone. And I went and looked, and like 50% of those people lost their houses wow. because they're stuck in this cycle. And that's not poverty. That's, that's not the issue. The issue is maybe it could have been just a alone or whatever that was. And I I looked at how Americans have continually gone overseas, and oftentimes what they do is they go over. I call it the two-year rule. I went over to Malawi. I brought this one guy, and he saw everybody barefoot. So he came back. He said, Paul, I'm going to start gathering shoes for people. I said, they don't need your shoes. He said, no, I have to bring them shoes. And so he, for two years, gathered, filled his garage full. He went over with me once again. And then never went back to Malawi. And uh, it's not that they don't need the shoes. It's, it's how you hand them out. 
And he would just, there's riots and he's throwing them everywhere and it's just a train wreck. At the end of the two years, he called me and said, yeah, this is too much. Can I give you the shoes? And I said, I said, no, you've got 10,000 shoes in your garage. Figure it out. That's, <laughs> um, and I just feel like, what was your original question? Going overseas perspective. Yeah, I think battling so, with the impact of like, was that selfish for me to go? And was I right? I, I think I've heard the term like um like poverty tourism. Right. Mm-hmm. So what happens then, it is poverty tourism if you are just going over and doing your own agenda. If you're going, I've been to Malawi, I don't know, 20 sometimes. I've been to Haiti 26, 27 times. I always go back to the exact same place with the exact same people. And every person I bring, I introduce them to blessings. I introduce them to Richard, to to Chief Malika, who just passed. Those guys in country run the business. They run the organization. They run the. I help them with dreaming. I help them with figuring it out. I help them with you know, hey Paul, what do you think we should do? And my question is always, what do you think we should do? So in that ability, in that way, with live love and our organizations, we have it in Malawi. We have it here. Um, it's. You're Malawian. This is your country. When I'm bringing people, I use the analogy of a bike tire. And, and this is I use with our Malawians. I use this in, in Liberia. I use this with, with our Americans here. Is um, I had a chief in Liberia, actually, in one of the towns. He came and he said to me, he goes, hey, can you give me some money? I said, could you give me some money? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He goes, why would you ask me for that? And I said, well, why would you ask me for money? He goes, because you're white. You have money. I said, true. I, I probably have more than you. But I said, what change would that bring if I just gave you some money? I said, and a, just then a bike had driven by. I said, whose bike tread is that in the dirt? He goes, oh, that's whatever. And he said his name. I said, how do you know that? He goes, I recognize the tread. I said, okay, so that tread, you know that person, right? He goes, of course I know that person. I said, so who can make a bigger impact, that person or me? He goes, what do you mean? I said, who could change your community more? Him, who's here every single day, and you recognize his tire, or me? He goes, well, you could because you have more money. I said, no, he could because he lives here. I said, so then I started thinking about that. And the tread, and I use this everywhere for, for development, the tread is the people in the community, and that's any community in the world. The spokes are areas of need. And I don't care where you are. Everyone needs clothes, not all the time, but most of the time. Everyone needs food. Everyone needs education. Everyone needs health care. Um, sometimes every, people need a hand up or lifting up or walking with them. And then there's that hub that holds everything together. For me, that's faith. For other people, it's different things. Um, and then there's that air nozzle. And in reality, that's all you and I are when we travel overseas. And what blessings will say, my country director in Malawi, he goes, that's the most needed part of the year. Because when that comes around, that air nozzle literally just touches for a couple weeks. He goes, but that fills up our staff. Mm. That brings resources into our organization because your people bring money. You bring hope. You bring teaching. You bring training. So I spend all my time with blessings. I I tell my people, go sit underneath the tree. Go hang out with the kids. We have programs and we have projects that we save for that two weeks. But the understanding of you are just the air nozzle. The problem is, is when you go in and say, nah, I'm the whole bike. And right. what I found at the Grove is, is, is I don't care if you finish your project or not, because I've got Malawians that are going to finish it. In fact, I hope you don't finish it, because then my Malawians will do it right. Plus, they'll get paid more. What I do care is if you come back a little wrecked and then have to wrestle through that. And what I've seen in 14 years at the Grove is that's changed our entire group of people at the Grove because so many of them have gone overseas and so many of them have served downtown Chandler with Live Love. It's And it's the exact same concept, matching people uh, with people that are similar but maybe grew up in a different area. And it it changes you. And if it changes you, it'll change an organization. If you took your whole company to... I don't know, name a place, Haiti once a year, it's going to change your organization because right. you're going to now have a percentage of your profits. You're going to want to send it down to those places. Right. Whereas Americans, we get so focused on all of our issues. If it, when Whenever you see specifically the third world, whenever you 
add that element into business, into faith, into life, into music, into whatever, you have a higher cause. And, and the, the statement of, well, you should stay here and serve in America, that's a stupid statement because, first of all, we're one of the most blessed countries in the world. But my response is, yeah, you're right. We should be serving here in America, and we are. And so if you go and serve globally, then sure, you should serve locally. And it's not about, one or the other. It's both. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. And talk about like, because you guys, you've mentioned Live Love a couple times. You've mentioned that you guys do work in, in Africa. Talk about what you guys do here locally in Chandler, Arizona, um, and what that looks like. Okay. So long story short, after after watching Extreme Home Makeover, um, backing up, when I lived in Guatemala, that was kind of my years of going from the music biz of getting platinum albums and huge success and fame and money and then going to no one's going to remember this band in 10 years no one's going to know who that movie is people still know who veggie tales are um but that's not that's not going to last no i my voice isn't bop the tomato yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you worked on veggie tales or in part of it yeah i did the marketing that's interesting um it's it's not going to last. And so I'm in Guatemala trying to figure out life and this homeless guy, Carlos. We just go through life for four years. And what, what that taught me, long story, is is just by going through life with someone who looks very different and comes from a very different place, you learn so much. And so that radically kind of changed me when I came back. So my commitment when I came back to America was I was going to look at uh, life differently. I, I made a commitment – that I would never know how much money I made. Um, I got a raise one year, <laughs> and I, they asked me how much I made, and I said a number, and they laughed, and they said I wasn't even within $15,000. So it's kind of freeing to not, wow. <laughs> to not really know. That's great. I think I kind of know about where I'm at. Your um, poor wife, though. like Yeah, it's she, bad because she has to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then what Carlos taught me is if you're going to change somebody's life, it's, it's long-term mentorship. And so I'm watching Extreme Home Makeover. I'm like, this is sewage. And my wife has a background in social work. And so she went to the city of Chandler and she just said, is there a community that we can serve? And so she's fluent in Spanish and they took her to this community down near Chandler High School. And she just started knocking on doors and just having conversations with my daughter, who was two at the time, and just over. And they were constantly like, why are you here? I'm just, what can we do? What do you need? So it started, it grew, actually. We were doing these huge service days. We're having 1,500 people show up on these once-a-year Live Love days. And we realized that we were making a huge impact, but it was that same thing. Huge impact, not much change. Right. So we changed everything and we bought a the number one crack house in Chandler and the cops one cop pulled me he was talking to me he's like I've had my gun literally drawn on this house on six separate occasions. Wow. He said there there's been more crack go through this house. He goes you're an idiot. He goes push it over. He goes no if, I said if I can if I can change this house it changes the community and it was in the community we work with. And the funny thing is, is because of my commitment to not understand or follow money, I also can't comprehend like what it takes to buy the house or any of those things. So uh, this was seven years ago. The house was for $56,000. And I said, okay, I'll pay you in three weeks. And three days, this. three days before it closes, the bank calls me and they say, okay. So here's my, my logic. I'm going to sell Live Love t-shirts and and like bags to raise fifty six thousand. That's a lot of t shirts and bags. Yeah, so I raised ten thousand dollars. I sold one shirt for five thousand dollars. Okay. Uh, but I'm I'm literally I'm like about ready to throw up. It's just I was so stressed out, and I'm forty thousand dollars short. Three days to go. The bank calls me. They said, "Okay, we're ready for you to wire the money." I'm like, "No, I don't." It's Monday. I said, "I don't close till Wednesday." And they're like, "Yeah, but we would." We close generally a couple of days, wire the funds. That way nothing's wrong. I said, okay. okay. I hung up the phone. I almost They're assuming that oh, this, it's, it's only 56 grand. <laughs> I'm like, like um, I just- almost threw up on the desk. And I just was like, and then my buddy came in, who's a pretty successful doctor, literally minutes later. And he's like, hey, did you raise enough money? And I was like, no, not really. And he's like, 
how about if I write you a check for thirty thousand dollars? Wow. I'm like, just like that, you're gonna write me a check for thirty grand? He goes, Yeah, I just feel like I was supposed to come by and write you a check for thirty grand. He goes, wow. Well, is that enough? And I sat there and I'm like, that's still that's ten thousand dollars short. So it's like it's that what do you do? And so I was like, Well, actually I need forty. <laughs> He's like, Okay, I'll I'll write you a check for forty grand. Wow. So he writes me a check for forty grand and I realize I was eleven dollars and seven cents short. And I was like, no, I want the full I want the full thing. So I dug through my bag, I found a dollar, I went and talked to a guy I worked with, and I just said, I need you to give me ten dollars. This is Palmer. And he said, I don't have ten dollars. I said he had ten dollars and one penny. I was short ten dollars and one penny at this point. I said, You give me the ten dollars or I'm gonna tell this story for the rest of my life and say that that you didn't you couldn't produce you ten dollars to save this fifty. Because I don't have any project. money. I'm like, there's a coffee shop right there. Go get ten dollars extra. And so we stood so there, just staring at each other. And he walked out, got the ten dollars, and by end of day, I had raised to the penny the exact amount. Uh, so it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I guess we're supposed to be doing the wrong, right thing. So long story, sorry. Uh, that house we remodeled, cash, no debt, and that has served as our pillar and that's where it's kind of the center of the community they call it the live love house we do after school stuff we actually have a family living there right now um and then we're getting ready we have two acres we're building a community center that will serve for a training center for the people in the community that is really cool that's great i've always wondered like when you're trying to execute on a big project like this and there's that fundraising process uh do those things build momentum like once you have some money is it easier to get the next money like if you have a hundred thousand dollar goal um from zero to 20 is probably the hardest right yeah i just and i live kind of in a different world in my thinking i think i i I think i think the logical thing is to come up with a really good plan and a really good um proposal and my logic is i think i'm supposed to do it let's go you know, it's, it goes back to that sixpence thing is, yeah, we'll just go, you know. And and so we just kind of have started, and it's just been amazing to see. And again, I'm a faith person. So for me, it's just that idea of I could dip my foot in the water, I could just do a cannonball. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want my story to be a dip my toe in. I want to jump, and I'm either going to drown, I think somebody will rescue me, or it's going to be an amazing story. And so, I mean, our first grant we got i mean first of all i tried to buy the land that we're on now this this two acre piece i tried to buy it myself and it just fell apart my wife got cancer and it was just all wrong timing as soon as she was done with cancer treatments she came to me a year or two later and she said we're supposed to buy that land and i think i'm supposed to do it i'm like okay and she stepped into that and it's just everyone donated and as we're getting ready to build, um, I just keep telling my board, I just feel this is what we're supposed to do. And the right people at the right time, if we're doing the right things. And it's just been miraculous to have people step in. Um, we got a grant from Isagenix for 100000 Oh, wow. And then it's like, okay, how do we go to the next phase? I'm like, well, we're going to have a guy that's going to step in. And, and and it's like I'm making this up, but I'm not. I'm like, I'm telling you, when we get to the city part, somebody will step in and help us. And I was teaching a class, and this guy in the class came up to me, really quiet guy. He's like, hey, I used to be the, the city manager for Phoenix, city of Phoenix. And I was the chief of staff for the mayor. And kind of retired can I help you and then he's like and then he throws in oh and I'm helping build terminal six at JFK <laughs> and I'm like and he's just this and he's like yeah so and he's got us through all the way through the city and then he, and then he says hey I need you to jump on the phone with this guy and so we jump on the phone and he's like three minutes before we go on hey they'll probably they do three billion worth of grants a year just so you know and I'm sitting there with my hat on, so I'm like taking my hat off and trying to make it look nice <laughs> on Zoom. And he just sees the guy's like, Yeah, we'll give you a 250000 if you guys do this and this and this. And so it's like when you start stepping into it, 
I just feel like if you're doing the right thing, the right people come along. How, how important are the right people? I mean, I, obviously you're emphasizing that, but like, is it the right people make projects work or the right projects bring the right people? Uh, for me, it's, and again, my world's a little backwards. And if you can't believe in me or if you can't believe in the, in this project or in my kind of warped reality, then you can't be at the table. And sadly, we're kind of in a very divided world right now. Sure. And I have to know, for me, it's a heart thing. And so if, if I can trust your heart, then let's go. I don't really care your political agenda. I care if you can, if you can put that aside. And, and, and so I think there's a reason we're all created differently. I need detailed pers- people around me, like, like nobody's business. But I can't have a person that is like, I can't have a person that, that when I'm dreaming, my wife knows that when I'm dreaming, 50% of what I'm saying is nonsense. You know, and <laughs> when we're the process of, yeah, when we were first married, and... she's like constantly panicking. And, and, and now she realized it's just, it's just stuff. It's getting me to the final product. Yeah. But in order to get to that final product, you got to go through all this jargon. Are, are you a verbal processor? Well, I think. It depends on who I'm with. Sure. Uh, so, like, I like to draw, and so, like, I'll draw out my, like, my dreams, and then I'll try and process. But if if I don't know you really well, I won't oftentimes because I don't feel like I can explain that. Sure. Because there's a picture in my head, and what happens is, is like, I had this picture in my head. We call it the Oasis, our community downtown that we're building but I couldn't figure it out. I just kept trying. And so I kept drawing it and kept drawing it and kept drawing it and trying to explain it verbally with my wife and one or two other people. So I'll have a tight group. And then there was one, it was during COVID. I woke up at three in the morning and it was like, like it just finally made sense. And so I real quick drew it all out on something and now I can process it. That's interesting. So but there's a process. And so like when I go and speak someplace, I can study and I can study and I can study, but Oftentimes it doesn't it's like with bread, it's not really done till it's done. And yep. so when I go speak, it's not really ready till it's ready. It's and, really interesting. Until then it's scary. Yeah, you're really I mean, creatives identify with this a lot. Like you just kinda like bang your head against the wall until like the light turns on mm-hmm. and you're like, Oh, this is what it could be right. or should be right. or and, and it just synthesizes things. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So most nonprofits, they do a bunch of email marketing. Never. They do a bunch of direct mail. Not at all. Wow, <laughs> you got to give people their uh, their ta- end of your tax. My wife does that. Yeah. They do phone calls to donors. Uh, we're supposed to, but. Why, why none of those things? So, okay, so our board just said, hey, you should start contacting your donors a little uh-huh. better. And sure, I agree. I I don't. Th- I think nonprofits waste so much time by putting together all these stupid golf tournaments yeah. and just giving the money. Like I, I don't want to waste all the time because I could be doing. Somebody was talking about a podcast today about how organizations for every fifty employees they lose a million dollars a year because of the time they waste on stuff like that. Yeah, and. I just really feel like I had a guy tell me a long time ago. He asked me he was he owned Harkins Theaters way back in the day they were called Moyer Theaters. And it was at the tail end of one of my businesses and he said he'd pay me X amount of dollars a month if I managed his, his daughter. And I really was just wanting him to buy me out. I was kind of done. And so I was I was trying to get like a load of money from him and I was trying to be a con man, I guess is what it is. And he kept saying to me, and I think there was a book called this, he kept saying, Paul, you got to kill what you eat. And I kept coming back, and I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, Paul, kill what you eat. Stop trying to get my money. Get it yourself. I'm like, but I'm working with your daughter. He goes, and I'm paying you for that. He goes, get that on your own on all these other areas. You have the ability to do that. Kill what you eat. And I was so angry because he had millions, and this was my music business, one of them, and he could have given me enough money to buy me out. And, and I just was, I was angry, but that brought me to when we started Live Love, I was like, you know what? I'm never going to ask anybody for money because that's all nonprofits do. They go around and ask people for money. What if we did this 
don't know if I, what if we did it bass awkward? What if we just never asked for money and we just did what we did do and we just trusted and didn't waste any, and we killed what we eat, you know? And so that process of it's freed up so much time. One of the things that we did is like I built a house downtown, uh, Liberty University, not the current state of Liberty University, but the former state of Liberty University. Hobby Lobby came in and bought a warehouse next to Liberty University for a million dollars. I'm making that number up. Liberty University then remodeled it. And now they had it appraised beforehand, and then they did all this addition to this property, and now it's worth $60 million. Again, I don't know if that's an accurate number. Uh Hobby Lobby then had it appraised. So for their $1 million investment, it's now worth $60 million. So Hobby Lobby then took that land and donated it to Liberty. So instead of a $1 million donation, they're getting a $60 million sure. tax right. write-off in a sense. So I realized at a smaller level, I can do that. So I had a doctor buy a lot for $25,000. I built a house on it. I sold it to somebody who's going to invest into the neighborhood. It was appraised at $240,000. I sold it to him for $180,000. I carried the the rest of the remaining amount at 0% with zero payments. So if you search it on Zillow, it comes up at $240,000. So mm-hmm. it keeps the property value high. Uh, the guy then donated the house back to me. So on a $25,000 investment, he got a $240,000 write-off. The family is buying a house that's worth $240,000 for $180,000. In exchange, they're serving as mentors on this street that we work on. And through that, we got $180,000 from the sale. That went straight to Live Love. Does that make sense? You're staring at me in the blank. No, this is just this is yeah. Just there's just a wonderful. Lot. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is like, there's a lot of numbers flying around. But so this in, is really in cool. a sense, what we did was we took a family that had already been serving with us and had already owned several houses, and everything about what we do is mentoring. Well, we realized that in order to fully take this to the next level, we need people living in the community, serving and mentoring an entire street. So we have people living on each street that serve as mentors. So I. I took an abandoned lot. I had one of my friends buy the lot for $25,000. He owns the lot the entire time. I then build a house from donations. People gave us money, gave us donations, donations in kind. We build a house in a sense for free. We get it appraised. It appraises at $240,000. His $25,000 donation or purchase is now worth $240,000. Now he could have sold the house himself and, and it's in it's in his name. He could have screwed us. I sold that to the family that's gonna serve as a mentor for hundred and eighty thousand dollars. It's way below market value, with an understanding that they have to stay there for at least five years or I get the I get the first right to buy it back at the hundred and eighty thousand dollars. But then there's a second on it at zero percent interest with zero payments, so that it shows the sale at two hundred and forty thousand. The people when we're writing it up, they're on, they said, "Do you understand? You're never going to get this money." I'm like, "Right," but it's going to show on Zillow that it sold for two hundred forty thousand, so it keeps the property value up. So what happens is, is we then once the sale went through, Live Love got one hundred eighty thousand dollars from that sale. The family got a brand new house. They're now serving as mentors. The guy that did the twenty five thousand dollar investment got a $240,000 write-off that you get like 60% spread over a couple, two, three years. That's killing what you eat. Is this your strategy? Like, I mean, I know you're saying you're replicating what you saw Hobby Lobby. Uh, I had and- a guy, I mean, he's, he's wealthy and he he's talking to me about it. I'm like, well, so let's go, let's do it. And so, but it's that kill what you eat. So I, I did, I improved the neighborhood. I moved a positive person in. They're now mentoring, literally mentoring the entire street. They're running one of some of our programs. I got $180,000 basically donated to Live Love, which would have taken me 30 stupid golf tournaments. And, you know, and so you're taking an area of your passion, you're killing what you eat. And, and I just think that's where in our world today, we just want a handout. And in a set, I mean, I had to build that house with my own hands. Right. I mean, I was there at night working on it and I had people volunteering. But it's that different perspective, and I think that's where nonprofits – I mean, if you look at most nonprofits – not most. A lot of nonprofits are out there 
a whole ton of their work, you see these on tours and stuff, 40% oftentimes just goes to their overhead. Right. right? It's just a waste. It's a very entrepreneurial approach because like it, it sounds like you created money out of thin air, but the truth is that you created value to the neighborhood and created value by building a house right. and that's a hun- it's a measurable amount right. of value right like right. and that that's very entrepreneurial it's super interesting the cool thing is is the second house we did same model different different guy uh there's a family she was mexican mafia i mean her story is rough she's our community leader so she has been in the community uh her first husband was huge in the gang second husband was murdered third husband came here illegally went back to Mexico, came back legally. Just unbelievable story. She's never owned a house her entire life. And she's lived on the street, lived on that street. So we did the exact same thing. She wanted the house painted blue. So it's the color of the cowboys. <laughs> it's super ugly. Um, it's easy to paint stuff, though. Yeah. yeah. And we were able to do that same thing. We did an extreme home makeover where we had people sponsor the room. So every kid had the room sponsored. We were able to walk them in and basically give them a house. Now, the difference is they can't even qualify for a loan. So now that money that we we made off this one, we we're pouring it into this one. It's literally one block down. And so now we're carrying the contract. They, they own the home, but we're 100% carrying the contract. So they now make a payment every month to live love, 0% interest, and it's their home. And so their first time in their life, they're homeowners. When you look at community development all around the world, until there's home ownership, you never change the community. Yeah, for sure. So There's a, a very different level of investment when you own a home in a neighborhood. Right. I mean, you, you're there. You really keep an eye on things. You really want to improve your own lot and things like that. And our old model would have been in to go and paint the houses and clean the, and. And it's just doing nothing. And so we had to stop, look back, change our whole model. And for four years, it was it was hard. What's the vision for the future? Like how how, how much longer do you want to do this? And how far do you want to take it? Uh, so I might get emotional. So I realized with, with the Oasis, I mean, it's a big building, but we did a partnership with ASU with their landscape design. And they sat down with all of the community. And the community said, here's what we dream. And, you know, quinceañeras cost us $8,000. We'd love to do them here. Weddings cost this. We'd have to do this. We, we would love to have job training. We'd love to have gardens, uh, communities. I mean, they don't have those things. So we took all of that data and created what they wanted. And I realized as I've been kind of dreaming through this and drawing it and building it is it won't fully – become what it's supposed to be until I'm dead because it's going to be, you know, the trees and it's a true oasis takes years. And so I just was one day realized I'm like, this isn't going to happen until I'm long and gone, you know? And so, but that's okay. That's, that's a, something that's lasting. And so what will, we will be doing, there's a side of the building where we're building tiny houses because we want to, I want to teach trades, and the best way to do that is you build a tiny house. I can build a tiny house in three, four months. I can sell it for forty grand. It's split between the guys that are helping, and they can they can learn a trade and go work across the street doing whatever. The other side of the house is a commercial kitchen where we're teaching cooking skills and we're bringing in elite elite chefs that are teaching them how to go and work and start businesses. Um, and then we're doing all this partnering, and then it's just there's just keeps going. So each part of it is finding their passions and then going out to finding somebody that's just brilliant and borderline nuts. Like my, my, one of my partners just had a conversation with a chef and he's like, this guy's like bonkers. He goes, you're going to love him. Like he's absolutely fruit loops. And that's like, I literally want the person that's crazy coming in, teaching these kids how to, how to cook or how to run a business or how to be an entrepreneur. That's awesome. And so wow. what does your guys' vision look like for Live Love International moving forward? I mean, so I, for Malawi, it's just they need to be self-sustainable. Yeah. And so they're starting – they started a uh, maize mill, which is where they take their corn and it, it makes basically their flour and that's where they make money. 
They started a clinic that's now become a hospital. They started a widow sewing pro- project that's now become a sewing project. And um, we have a lot of people from outside coming in buying land. And so we're trying to buy land so that what we're doing is 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 lasting. Uh, we're building a school. I think the biggest thing we've done is a soccer program that really is a mentoring program for men. Um uh, but w- what it is in the future is up to them. It's I I, I mean I, that's not my call. That's right, their right. call. Well, man, I mean we we've been recording for about an hour now, and like it's like ten different directions. Sorry, it, it's cool. This I love that. There's things. a track to it though, like hearing about uh, like how you were in your childhood, all the different random jobs you had, and like it all makes sense hearing about live love <laughs> now. Like all those experiences seem to have contributed mm-hmm. towards. Like this ultimate vision of you doing something for other people. Right. I, awesome. I mean, I'm 51, and I can honestly say I used to – when I walked away from the music industry, I had two platinum albums. I had a top 10 movie, VeggieTales, and I, I walked away and I went, that was just a complete waste. That was 10 years of my life gone. And now at 51, I look at how everything I've done has come, has come back. And it's kind of come full circle. And as I look forward, I'm like – like my fifties feel like my thirties. Like I feel like like I'm literally feel like I'm just getting started again. You know, I get worried that I don't have enough time to do all this stuff. So I'm I'm fired up. It's awesome. Well man, we're really proud to have you on the podcast and it's really cool to hear all the uh, things you're doing. I'm proud of you too. Thank you. Kids are you. awesome. Um people that are listening, how can they Give to Live Love. How can they get involved? Uh, do you want to mention your website, things like that? Yeah, Live Love is just what is live org. Maybe it's .org. You'd have to ask my wife. Try both. <laughs> I think it's what is liveslove.org. Uh, I think all the stuff is on there. And then it's just livelovemalawi.org or .com. You can just Google everything now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Google For it. sure. Who cares? <laughs> there cool. you go. Thank Thanks you for joining.